Hello and welcome to this podcast from Podularity. My name is George Miller, and in this programme, I'm revisiting an interview I did with archaeologist and broadcaster Neil Faulkner, shortly before the London Olympics four years ago. The book we met to talk about then, which is still available from Yale University Press, is his Visitor's Guide to the Ancient Olympics. The games in question took place in 388 BC, and Neil's book offers all the information the sport-loving time traveller could wish for in preparation for the ancient Olympics. Listening to the interview again, I realise that not only have our attitudes to sport changed since antiquity, they've also subtly shifted in the past four years. But on with the games. Here's how I introduced the interview in 2012. What will we find when we eventually reach Olympia after a long and dusty journey at the height of the Greek summer? Where will we stay? What will we eat and drink? And what events are on offer? And how different are they from their modern equivalents? And will we find anything resembling what we've come to think of as the Olympic spirit? All these questions and many more are tackled in Neil Faulkner's Guide to the Ancient Olympics, and the answers are often surprising and sometimes shocking. Neil began by telling me more about the idea behind the project. I think what I was trying to do was to create as fully as possible for the modern reader the lived experience of going to the ancient Greek Olympics. So I'm assuming that the audience is somebody from the present, in a sense travelling back in time, but I'm not making any reference to present time at all. So it is as if you have landed in this world and all of the references are to the existing world as it was in 388 BC. The idea being to try and give the modern reader a sense of what it would actually have been like to have spent five days at the original ancient Greek Olympics. Give me some sort of sense of the context in which these games took place, the sort of wider political context of the Greek world, because, because it's very different from, from, from the modern political reality. The ancient Greek world in 388 BC was divided into about a thousand different city-states. Many of these city-states were rivals, they were often at war with each other. There were usually several wars happening somewhere in Greece um, at any particular moment in time. So this is an extremely divided and competitive world. Uh, And it's a world which puts huge emphasis on sport, partly because all of these city-states depend for their armed forces on a citizen militia made up of their adult male citizens. So there's a sense in which Greek sport is war without the shooting. It's preparation for war in a highly divided and competitive world. And that's reflected in the nature of the sports which are represented, isn't it? Every single one of the events, in a sense, is mirroring the kinds of qualities which a fighting man needs. So the pentathlon, for example, involves throwing missiles. It involves running. And of course, you need to be able to run very fast on the battlefield, either towards the enemy or away from the enemy. And it involves wrestling. The other events, um, the individual races, foot races are tests of speed. The individual combat events are all tests of fighting skills. So there's a real sense in which this is the whole festival, in a way, is war without the shooting. And it's encouraging young men all over Greece to train in the gymnasia in these skills that are also going to contribute to the fighting power of their own city. 
And there's also an event where you actually run in armour. That is the nature of the event. It's, it's running with your armour on. Yes, I suspect uh, there are discussions about this, and we don't know a great deal about, about the race in armour from the, from the sources, and scholars have discussed exactly how it worked. My guess it was, is that it was a bit of light relief, and although it obviously is the event which most closely mirrors the experience of the battlefield, the probability is that spectators regarded it as rather fun to watch people clattering down the track in heavy armour. It sounds almost like a sort of winding down event. It comes towards the end, doesn't it? And you sort of emphasise that, that, that some of the dramatists would make fun of this event. Yes. And I suppose it stood in quite stark contrast to the very violent contact sports which had come in the preceding days. Yes, I think there's no doubt at all that the other events are more serious. And I think in particular, the spectators were interested in the chariot races, which were the equivalent of modern motor racing in terms of their excitement and the speed and so on and the risk of collision. I think people were very interested in the foot races and in particular the Greek equivalent of the uh, the 200 metres which was the, the short, their short sprint because the winner of that particular race would be the man, the champion who gave his name to the Olympiad. That four year period would be known by his name for forevermore and of course the combat sports which were very popular with the spectators wrestling boxing and pancratian no holds barred those three very violent events much more violent i think than our equivalent events uh, today the spectators loved it they were interested in in the bloodshed and they were interested in men being pushed to the absolute limit of the agony, the pain which, which they could endure. This was the supreme test, really, of manliness in ancient Greece. Now, if you've got a thousand city-states potentially at war with one another, you, you remind us that I think Athens was at war in, for three years out of four in, in this period. There's a very immediate practical difficulty. How do you then organise the Pan-Hellenic Games? Well, the Greeks had an interesting way of dealing with the problem of uh, perennial warfare in relation to not just this religious festival but many other religious festivals too. Uh, In relation to the Olympics there was a sacred truce. Now the sacred truce has sometimes been misinterpreted in recent times to imply that the Greeks ended all of their wars for the duration of the games, uh, which was not the case. What the sacred truce meant was that anybody who was travelling to the games was a pilgrim because he, and we're talking about men, not, not women, citizen women didn't go, he would be uh, travelling to the Games as a pilgrim to honour Zeus at the, at the sanctuary. So he would therefore be under, under the protection of the gods, and that's what we mean really by the sacred truce. Other Greeks might continue fighting their wars. You might even pass through territory belonging to cities that are at war with each other, but you would be protected by the gods as a as a pilgrim, as somebody travelling to the Olympic Games. Now tell me if this our imaginary traveller makes it to um, the Peloponnese, what does he find when he gets to the Olympic site? I think the Olympic site for the modern visitor would be a tremendous shock. There's a very elaborate sanctuary, uh, which indeed would have been one of the most spectacular sites in the whole of ancient Greece in terms of its architecture, uh, its art, the range of antiquities on display and so on. There would be a very simple stadium 
consisting simply of a running track with grass banks on either side. An equally simple but larger hippodrome, which was for the equestrian races. But that would be it. The Olympic Village, where we think there may have been as many as 100,000 people attending at the height of the Games and, and seeking accommodation there, the Olympic Village didn't exist except insofar it was improvised by the people arriving. So it's essentially an extent of the river valley, the river valley of the of the Alpheos, uh, which at this time of year would have been relatively dry because the games take place in high summer, they take place in August, and you would simply have had to find yourself a pitch. You might want to try and improvise some kind of shelter if you could find some means of doing it. If you were wealthy, you might well have brought a tent with you, but most people weren't wealthy enough to do that. The probability is that the majority of people are just sleeping rough out in the uh, open. And needless to say, in the context of this traditional agricultural society, without proper facilities, the sanitation was appallingly bad. So there were heaps of sewage and rotting refuse accumulating very rapidly in and around the Olympic Village. And one has to imagine that there was the most extraordinary infestation of uh, rodents, of insects, of flies and wasps and mosquitoes and so on. So the whole experience would have been a massive culture shock, I think, for anybody visiting from the present. You describe it at one point, which made me smile, as being like a gigantic stag party. <laughs> Tell me in what, in what way. Well, I say this really because citizen women did not go to the Games. This was a, a male-only uh, event, and indeed no women at all went into the stadium or the hippodrome, with the single exception of the priestess of Demeter of the Earthbed, who for religious reasons was allowed into the, the stadium and the hippodrome, but no women at all otherwise. The only women who would be present in the Olympic Village would have been non-citizen women, providing a range of services of the predictable kind. The wives, the mothers, the daughters and the sisters of the citizen men going to the games would all have stayed at home. What this means, of course, is that for the men attending the games, there is a sense in which that this is a kind of sex holiday with large numbers of prostitutes um, available in the Olympic Village. And also, because homosexuality was such a central feature uh, of Greek life, lots of opportunities as well for eyeing up the male talent, which of course is performing naked uh, in, the, in the games, and uh, making sexual conquests. And I describe it, I think, somewhere as a kind of uh, a sort of an Olympic sex fest which in a sense is part of the experience. I think it's working at a number of different levels in ancient Greece. It's partly about the athletics and coming into contact with celebrity. It's partly about genuine piety and devotion, and religion is as important as the games. But it's also a holiday for the boys in company, and the boys will be out for sexual entertainment. We have all, I suspect, grown up with certain notions of the Greek Olympic ideal. And when you come to talk about the kind of person who became an athlete, that ideal begins to disintegrate, really. So tell me a bit about the kind of people who became athletes in the ancient Greek world. We're not absolutely sure, but the sense we get, I think, is that the great majority of athletes were probably aristocrats, or at least from 
the upper echelons of society. And that's for the very simple reason that it was professional sport. You couldn't get to the top unless you devoted yourself to training, unless you were uh, travelling the circuit and participating in a range of different competitions. You really wouldn't have had any real possibility of becoming an Olympic champion. Now, if you're going to spend your time doing that, to get launched you're almost certainly going to have to belong to the leisured classes at the outset. Once you've established a reputation, then of course you'd attract sponsors, not least your own city-state community who would be interested in promoting you as a potential champion. But to get to that point where you begin to attract notice and you begin to attract sponsorship, the probability is that you had resources at the outset. So although Greek sport becomes much more democratic in the classical period than it had been in the age of Homer, for example, I think we have to face the reality that the practicalities, the practical barriers to top-level participation by people from the working population, essentially the population of free citizen peasant farmers who made up the majority um, of the citizen body in ancient Greece, I think participation from that section of society would have really been quite modest. So athletes were not amateurs and they had quite a serious training programme, didn't they? I mean, tell me a little bit about the, the life of an athlete in ancient Greece. Well, I think what the athletes are doing is essentially two things. They are training and we know that there were professional trainers. We know that there were schools of training where there would be debates between different schools about what's the right kind of diet, what's the best kind of exercise routine and so on. So they'd spend a certain amount of time in the hands of their trainer, possibly using public facilities, quite possibly using the local city gymnasium. And then otherwise, I think that they would be moving around the ancient Greek world, participating in the very large number of local games festivals that were being held. The Olympics, of course, are famous. There were three other crown games, as they were called. So there were four crown games where there were no prizes. You simply got a wreath, a, a vegetal wreath as your reward. But that, of course, made you a celebrity. That made you a top sportsman. But there were hundreds of other games, some more prestigious than others. But there's always several games going on at any time of year in different parts of Greece. And a very high proportion of these games would offer substantial money prizes because what the local city hosting the games was trying to do was to attract the talent, to attract the stars because that would bring in the spectators. So there's a lot of prize money out there to be made. So some things haven't changed. Indeed. I mean, it's exactly, it works in exactly the same way today in, in relation to our own Olympics. So you've got up to 100,000 people. You've got elite athletes from all over the, the Greek world. You've got this heady brew of competition, rivalry, sex, religion. And that inevitably attracts a whole sort of fringe, doesn't it? Sort of a whole sort of culture around the games themselves. Yes, this is probably the single most high-profile uh, pan-Hellenic event in the Greek calendar. And although the Olympics were absolutely exclusively concerned with athletics, you could go to other games festivals and there would be competitions in lyre playing, flute playing, drama, poetry and so on. Not at the Olympics. The Olympics is exclusively concerned with athletic achievement. However, with such a huge audience at such a prestigious event, what you got was a very exciting 
cultural fringe where all sorts of people, including in some cases people absolutely at the top of their professions, would go to the Olympics in order to perform because they were guaranteed to have a large audience. So we hear about famous people like Herodotus, the father of history, who goes to the Olympic Games in order to read from his new history of the Persian Wars. We hear about Plato, the great philosopher, going to the uh, Olympic Games. So some of the greatest names in Greece are represented here. So the fringe, uh, for a modern visitor, the fringe would absolutely be blow your mind. I was interested both by the relative paucity of, of individual sports represented and also the fact that over time events would new events would be added so it wasn't it wasn't sort of set in stone right from the beginning no that's absolutely right there seems to be a steady ramping up of the range of different events and not just a steady increase in the in the in the busyness of the program in the number of different sports which are admitted but also some trial and error cases as well where certain sports are introduced briefly into the program but then drop out again. There is for example um, a, a mule race in which mules pull a kind of box cart contraption which must have been a very sort of third grade type of chariot race and it clearly wasn't popular. It clearly compared very unfavourably with the chariot races. So it appears briefly at the Olympic Games and then disappears again. You say in the book that the four horse chariot race was probably the most spectacular of all the events um, on display. Yes, that's right. And I, I, th- I think that, uh, of course, the, the, the chariot racing and the, and the horse racing was very much a sport for, for the horsey elite. You had to have huge resources behind you to be able to afford racing horses and chariots and so on so the the chariot owners and the horse owners are top people and i think that probably the the vast majority of the people in the hippodrome watching the event uh, probably wouldn't earn enough to pay for a team of racing horses and a chariot in an entire lifetime of work so there's a sense that there's a sort of undertone of potential class resentment, I think, in the audience. And I, I suspect that that is one of the reasons why people were quite keen to see some of these chariots come a cropper. The chariots are moving at fantastic speed. There's bunching at the turning posts because the, the charioteers are trying to reduce the size of the, the swing around the turning post. So the, the chariots, the vehicles are coming together. They're moving at top speed. A lot of collisions happened at that point, and the smashes could be really spectacular. And you could have multiple pile-ups, of course. Uh, We know of one chariot race, not at Olympia but elsewhere, where only one chariot in the entire field actually managed to end the race. So I think not the least of the attractions for the audience at the chariot race is the possibility of a wealthy owner's chariot coming a cropper. I, I couldn't help seeing certain parallels, maybe not in that regard, but between that and Formula One, you know, in terms of the, the expense and the, the danger and the spectacle. Yes, I think that's, that, that's exactly right. I mean, I think there are many, many parallels between what is happening in ancient chariot racing and what is happening in Formula One today. The other thing that struck me was the high percentage of contact sports. You know, there's a lot, there's a lot of combat going on. Yes, there is. And uh, these contact sports are particularly brutal. If we take, we take the example of boxing, the punching in boxing was all to the head. 
and, and it was done without protective gloves. And there are images in ancient art of, of, of boxers. There's a very, very famous, we have an, um, an illustration of this in the book, very, very famous uh, bronze, life-size bronze of uh, an ancient boxer in one of the museums now in, in Rome. And it shows his cauliflower ears, his heavy brows, his broken nose, and a face covered in scars. So these are very brutal contact sports. The Pancratian, if anything, is worse because it's a no-holds-barred fight or almost no-holds-barred. There are one or two exceptions. You're not supposed to gouge your opponent's eyes out, for example, but there aren't many other restrictions than that. And the idea with the Pancratian is that you're trying to inflict such unbearable pain on your opponent that you force a submission out of him. You've talked about the, the culture shock for the, the visitor who was dropped at the ancient Olympics. What about if modern athletes were dropped at the ancient Olympics? How do you think they would fare? I think modern athletes, or, or, or a very large proportion of modern athletes, would find the challenge of performing completely naked quite uh, daunting. I mean, this is something that the, the Greeks were very, very relaxed about, but we are very much more prudish and self-conscious about public uh, nakedness. I think modern athletes would be shocked that there is no recording of distances and speeds and so on. No record-keeping of any kind, so there are no world records uh, to be made. All that is happening is that on the day, on that particular day, you're being tested against the very best at that moment in time in Greece. And you've got to come first. There are no second prizes, no third prizes, no silver medals, no bronze medals. And nor is there any sense that it is enough to do your best. I mean, all of our Olympic athletes, wherever they come in the ratings, enjoy a certain amount of prestige simply by virtue of the fact that they are Olympians. They have participated in the Olympic Games, not in ancient Greece. Um, there's a very, very strong sense of individualistic competitiveness, a striving to beat everybody else, a striving to prove that you're best, and a deep-rooted sense of shame and disgrace and failure among all of those who didn't succeed in coming first. These are major differences with the whole culture around sport today, I think. Neil Faulkner. That was an interview from the Podularity Archive from 2012. Neil's book is available from Yale University Press in paperback and contains several dozen black and white illustrations, as well as a colour plate section. Until next time, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.